Mark chapter 2, if you would turn to that passage of Scripture. And let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are so excited about the fact that we can study your word, that we can uh, look deeply into it, and as we do, we see your character, and we see your love, and we see your grace and your compassion. We also see ourselves, and we see how far short we fall, how much more ground we need to cover as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we grow in our usefulness to you, as we grow in our love for you. We are always grateful for the salvation that you've given us through your son Jesus. Thank you that we have hope beyond the grave. And thank you that Jesus is going to return for us. And we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. We look forward to his return. Lord, guide us as we study your word. Help us to see its truths, to apply them to our lives, and to be good witnesses for you in our lost world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we looked at the first couple of verses, the first five verses of Mark 2 last week, where we read this, starting at verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, that's where we start this week. Now, his statement, son, your sins are forgiven, caused a lot of heartburn, a lot of trouble for the religious leaders, and we're going to see why that is in just a moment. But uh, Jerry Hollinger, a great teacher of the Word of God, uh, has a great gift for synthesizing and summarizing the Word of God. And he says this about Mark chapter 2. According to the religious leaders, sickness was a sign of God's displeasure. Therefore, only God could remove sin. Thus, in this section, Christ is claiming the prerogatives of God in forgiving sin and healing, of healing the sick. So, we don't want to miss that. That is the major thing that Mark is trying to communicate to us in this section, is that Jesus was once again showing, Jesus was once again demonstrating, Jesus was once again saying through his ministry, through his teaching, and through his actions, that he is God incarnate. He is God incarnate. And that's the main thing we want to see here. And that was what caused difficulty for the religious leaders because only God can forgive sin. And yet here is Jesus saying to this paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
your sins are forgiven. Later, we'll see in chapter 2 that he tells him to rise up and take his mat and walk. Now that caused a problem for the religious leaders. They caused a problem for religious leaders. The religious leaders, they believed that when a person was sick, it was due to some personal sin in their lives. We still have people like that today who, when somebody gets ill or somebody has a horrible thing happen to them, they, they want to blame it on the person. They want to say, well, what did that person do? What sin did that person commit that is causing them to go through this particular situation? That was the view of the Pharisees. That was the view of the scribes, that this man was suffering for something he had done, for some sin he had done, therefore his suffering was justified. Let him suffer. Wow. Wouldn't you like to come around those people, right? Wow. What an attitude. He's suffering. He's rightly suffering. God is making him suffer because of some sin in his life. And therefore, let him suffer. Why should he be relieved of his suffering? That was the conflict that was going on. And I also mentioned last week that in this section, chapter 2 of the book of Mark, we see increasing conflict with the religious leaders until it culminates in Mark 3, 6 with their desire to kill Jesus, their desire to put Jesus to death. So that is the conflict going on in these, these verses, this conflict that this man, according to the religious leaders, is rightfully suffering, and no one has a right to interfere with that. And on top of that, only God has the right to forgive sin. Who is this Jesus that he should say to the man, your sins are forgiven. So that's some of what's going on in this passage. Uh, one writer said, another writer said, in the Old Testament, disease and death were viewed as the consequences of man's sinful condition, and healing was predicated on God's forgiveness. That is, the Old Testament understood the truth is that sin uh, brought suffering into the world. When Adam and Eve turned their backs upon God in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, remember, chapter 2 spells out for us that Adam and Eve were in a perfect environment where all of their needs were met, where they had uh, uh, an untried righteousness, where they had freedom, where they had uh, interaction with God, personal interaction with God, and yet they turned their backs on all of that. When the serpent came and tempted Adam and Eve and they believed the serpent and they chose autonomy versus worshiping God, worshiping versus following God. And that brought sin into the world. With sin came death, every kind of death. Death is in the Bible separation, separation. It brought separation between mankind and God. It brought separation between people, uh, men, women, boys, girls. It brought separation into this world. Sin brought disaster into this world. Sin brought suffering into this world. Sin brought sickness into this world. It, it always interests me and saddens me that when some horrible thing happens, that the first thing that many people say 
is why did God let this happen? Why didn't God stop this? And they blame God for some horrible events in our world, some horrible things. And it never dawns on them. They never stop to think, where did this kind of thing come from? Where did this, this uh, sin come from? Where did this suffering come from? It wasn't God. It wasn't God. It was because we, in Adam and Eve, and that's what Romans 5.12 tells us, that you and I were in Adam, uh, in, in, uh, uh, either he was our representative or we were in his body seminally, that is that every person ever to be born would be uh, in his body. And um, uh, so sin brought all of this suffering into the world because Adam and Eve and you and I and Adam and Eve turned our backs upon God and that brought suffering into the world. So when some disaster happens, when some horrifying thing happens, and there are a lot of horrifying things in our world, in this world, aren't there? When something like that happens, let's rightfully blame the fact that we turned our backs upon God. We brought sin into the world. And therefore there is suffering, therefore there is sickness, therefore there is disease, therefore there are natural disasters because sin now is in the world. And that was the teaching of the Old Testament. The, the rabbis took it to the next step. They taught that all sickness was a sign of God's displeasure and came as a punishment from God for specific sins. They said everything that happens Every bad thing that happens, every sickness that happens, every uh, uh, thing like this paralytic comes because of some sin in their lives. The biblical teaching is it comes generically, generally because of sin. Only occasionally does it come because of some personal sin in a person's life. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. There is a connection between sickness sin and sickness, in that all suffering stems from man's separation from God. But there's not always a one-to-one -one correlation between sin and disease. Uh, we mentioned last week, and you can look up and for your own study, uh, Job is a good example of that. John 9, the man born blind, is a good example of that. Luke 13, 1-5 is a good example of that. There's not always a one-to-one -one correlation between sin and disease. Uh, one writer put it this way, It's not as if this sick man were unusually sinful, but his case makes the universal separation of man from God more conspicuous and illustrates the truth which is proclaimed over and over in the Old Testament that all suffering is rooted in man's separation from God. For this reason, Jesus must call attention here to man's deepest need. Otherwise, the testimony of this healing would remain nothing more than the story of a remarkable miracle. In other words, there's something much deeper going on here. There's something much deeper going on 
in the healing of this man. Now, I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago uh, Charles Wendell's Laws of uh, Suffering, or Five Suffering Laws. And uh, let me just remind you what they are, because I, I agree with what Swindoll says. He says, have you heard of the five suffering laws? That question appears in no booklet, but it should. These laws will do more to help the hurting and erase their confusion than perhaps anything else they could read. All five are well supported in Scripture. In other words, if you understand these five suffering laws that come right out of Scripture that, that Swindoll shares with us, if you understand these five suffering laws, it will keep you and me from a lot of bad conclusions. A lot of bad conclusions about sickness, a lot of bad conclusions about disaster, a lot of bad conclusions. Well, law number one, there are two classifications of sin. There is original sin, that is the inherited sin nature, traceable to Adam, who is the head of the human race, Romans 5.12. There are number two, personal sins, that's individual acts of wrong that we regularly commit. Because we all have an inherited sin nature, we commit sins. All right? That is the first thing. There are two classifications of sin, original sin and personal sins. Law number two, original sin introduced suffering and illness and death to the human race. Original sin introduced suffering, illness, and death to the human race. Law number three, Sometimes there is a direct relationship between personal sins and sickness. David testified of such, Swindoll says, in Psalm 32, Psalm 38. Paul warned that some of the Corinthian believers were weak and sick and a number of them were dead because they were sinning. So law number three, sometimes there is a direct relationship between personal sin and sickness. Law number four, sometimes there is no relationship between personal sins and sickness. Sometimes there is no relationship between personal sins and sickness. For instance, uh, Swindoll goes on to say, some are born with affliction, suffering before they ever reach the age of committing sins. Others, like Job, are living upright lives when the suffering comes. Jesus himself sympathizes with our weaknesses, Hebrews 4.15. Rather than rebuking us because we have sinned, remember, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, Hebrews 5.8. Jesus never committed sins, yet he suffered. Law number one, there are two classifications of sin, original sin and personal sin. Law two, original sin introduced suffering, Illness and death to the human race, law three. Sometimes there is a direct relationship between personal sins and sickness. And law number four, sometimes there is no relationship between personal sins and sickness. And finally, law number five, it is not God's will that everybody, everyone rather, be healed in this life. It is not God's will that everyone be healed in this life. And we looked a couple of weeks ago at many examples of that. Swindoll says, just for the record, let me clarify two matters. Am I suggesting God does not perform healing? Am I 
discounting divine healing. Absolutely not, he says. Every time healing happens, God has done it. It occurs daily. Occasionally, it is miraculous. More often, it is aided by proper diagnosis, expert medical care, essential medicinal assistance, plus common sense. No hocus-pocus, no mumbo-jumbo, no hotshot carnal, carnal circus. When God heals, there is no way man can grab the glory. Then he says, am I declaring God does not need healers? Am I discounting divine healers? He says, absolutely. Absolutely. That is the the obvious conclusion to the five suffering laws. Maybe you'd better read them again. He says, healers prey on those who don't know the facts. And by the way, they never visit hospitals and make healing calls with physicians, nor do they announce the fallout problem the vast number of those whose healings didn't take. So I, I agree, and the reason I wanted to mention these five suffering laws to you again is because I think understanding them puts a lot of things in perspective. Understanding them puts a lot of sickness in perspective. Understanding them puts a lot of uh, disasters into perspective. Understanding them puts a lot of suffering in perspective. Well, that's the reason for this clash, this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. They didn't make any, the religious leaders didn't make any account of the fact that not all sickness comes from personal sin. So therefore, they thought that this man who was a paralytic, and and again, it is really hard for me to understand, maybe somebody can explain it to me, how they could be such religious people and yet be glad the man is suffering. Because that was their theology. He was suffering for some sin he did, therefore if you relieve his suffering, you're wrong to do that. So Jesus is wrong on that account. And then on top of it, Jesus claims to be God and able to forgive sin, and that really set them off. That really set them off. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is demonstrating that he had the authority to forgive sins and to heal not just physical illness, but the sick soul as well. That was his mission. I love what one writer said. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. Do you ever think about that? Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest needs, need. It costs the greatest price, the death of Jesus on Calvary's cross. And it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. That's an amazing statement. And the question is, do we always believe that? Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus performs. There is no greater miracle. There is no greater miracle of healing, miracle of any other kind. The greatest miracle that Jesus performs is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Well, he's demonstrating here that he had the authority. Remember, he's demonstrated his authority over demons. He's demonstrated his authority over disease. 
He's uh, demonstrated his authority over leprosy, and now he is demonstrating his authority to forgive sin, to forgive sin. Uh, and that's an important point here. So in verses 6 and 7, we see the opposition uh, expresses itself. Now some teachers of the law, and you might want to write out to the column of your Bible there, scribes. In the King James, for instance, that would have been translated scribes. The NIV, instead of translating it scribes, translates it as teachers of the law. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now the first thing that we should answer is, who are these scribes? Who are these scribes? And the parallel passage in Luke chapter 5 and verse 7, 17 rather, 517, tells us that it was not only the scribes who were there, but the Pharisees were there as well. The Pharisees and scribes both were at this occasion and other occasions when Jesus taught. So we ought to ask ourselves, who are the Pharisees? Who are the scribes? Well, the Pharisees were the most influential religious party. Many scribes were also Pharisees. Originally, they were a group of laymen who sought to be separate from impure things and people and attempted to apply Mosaic law to all parts of life. Now, that's admirable. It's admirable to want to live a pure life. It's admirable to want to separate from, from things that are wrong. But by Jesus' time, the Pharisees had lost the heart of their religion. They had lost the heart of the Old Testament. And Jesus is here displaying the heart of God. Jesus is here displaying uh, God's heart to these people. They became separatistic. They were legalistic. They called themselves Habarim, which meant, as one writer said, one who associates himself strictly with the law in opposition to the encroachments of Hellenism, which they thought was uh, causing the religion of Israel to be diluted, never understanding their own part in causing the religion of Israel, causing what God had desired for that nation to be diluted. Another writer said they started out with zeal for the word and its purity, but they ended up rigid, imbalanced, and hypocritical. You know, that's such a fine line. Uh, the most hypocritical people I've known throughout the years of my ministry are those who are the most legalistic. The ones who are the most legalistic often wind up being the most rigid and imbalanced and hypocritical. And it, so there's a great danger. Uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely necessary for us to desire purity. There's no question about that. It's absolutely necessary for us to desire to please God. To please God. To want to, to please Him. To want to be obedient to His Word. There's nothing wrong with that. It's when we become out of balance. 
when we become out of balance and we become hypocritical about it and we see sin in other people's lives, but we don't see the sin in the person that's looking back at us from the mirror. And that's what happens. That's what happens with legalism. Well, the Pharisaic principles were these, as we look deeper into who these Pharisees were, the Pharisaic principles, number one, they were deeply devoted to the Mosaic law. They were deeply devoted to the Mosaic law. Number two, they strictly regulated their lives by binding interpretations of the oral law. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the written law of Israel was the Torah. The Torah is what? First five books of the Old Testament is the Torah. It's the first five books of the Old Testament. What these people said, and, and I tell you what, whenever, uh, you know, this, this uh, time of year, when I'm reading through the Bible in a year, I've just gotten out of the first five books, a little path beyond the first five books, and I cannot believe that there were people in that day and still are today who don't believe there's enough laws there. If you've ever read through the first five books of the Bible, I think you will find that there are plenty of laws there. Somebody counted it. I didn't sit down and count it. I want you to know that I'm trusting somebody's math. Said there were more than 600 laws in the Torah. More than 600 laws. But what the scribes did, who we'll get to in just a moment, we're talking about the Pharisees, what the scribes did is they said, the problem with those 600 plus laws is they're generic. They're kind of general. Therefore, we need to figure out specifics on how to follow those generic, general rules. And so they came up with the oral law. For instance, the law says you cannot work on Sabbath day. Well, how many steps becomes work? If I go 10 steps on the Sabbath, have I worked? And so they actually came up with the oral law. They came up with the number of steps you could walk on the Sabbath day without breaking the Sabbath law. That's how detailed they got. So... The Pharisees were deeply devoted to the Mosaic Law. The Pharisees strictly regulated their lives by binding interpretations of the Oral Law. The Pharisees were meticulous about maintaining ceremonial purity. They were the most influential religious party in Palestine. They considered the Oral Law as binding as the written law of Moses. In their view, the oral law was as binding as the written law of Moses. Well, the Pharisees, the practical effects upon the lives of the Pharisees for living the way they did was that they made God in their own image. They made God in their own image. They made God to be somebody who was like them instead of them being like God. They made God into their image. They became intolerant. They became petty. They were more interested in rules and regulations and rituals than they were in life. 
Those so close to the law of God so missed its intent. Those so close to the law of God so missed its intent. Remember, I think we see the intent in many places in Scripture, but one place that comes to my mind is when Jesus said, I am come that they might have not more rules, not a hypocritical outlook, not looking down upon other people, but he said, I am come that they might have life. And the way Howard Hendricks and most people don't know that name anymore, and that is a shame because he's one of the greatest preachers ever of the word of God. He's in heaven today. He paraphrased it this way. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life. I mean really live. There's an exuberance there. Instead, the Pharisees were intolerant, they were petty, and they were more interested in rules and regulation and ritual, the three R's. Well, the scribes, or teachers of the laws, as translated in the NIV, they were experts at the law uh, in the law. Some of some Pharisees were scribes, as we've seen. They were experts in the law, meaning the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, which were sacred to the Jews. And the scribes believed that the Torah must be the supreme rule of faith and life. The Torah, the Torah contains everything necessary to guide and direct life. Thus, they had two needs that they saw. Number one, the need to study it intensely. And number two, that it contained great and broad principles which must be brought out and expressed in rules and regulations. To do this study, this class of scholars arose called the scribes. Their task was to extract rules and regulations for every possible situation in life. They extracted rules and regulations for every possible situation in life. They transmitted and taught the law. They are responsible for the oral law. It wasn't written down and even though it wasn't written down, it was considered even more binding than the written law. Even more binding than the written law. And they had, thirdly, had the duty of giving judgment in individual cases. By Jesus' time, the oral Torah had become so minute and devoid of spiritual meaning that the law of God was set aside and in some cases even nullified. In other words, they took their own view, their own, their, uh, own man-made view, and they made that more important than God's word. They made it more important than God's word. 
by Jesus' time. If you want an example of that, we don't have time to turn there, but look at Mark chapter 7, verses 5 and following. Mark chapter 7, verses 5 and following should give you an example of that. You see, that's the nature of legalism, and it still is today. If you encounter legalists, or have encountered in your lifetime, in your ministry, if you've encountered legalists, you know this is the nature of legalism is to make rules and live that when you make rules to live by, they become more important than God's word. When you make rules to live by, they become more important than God's word. Well, they should have come with open hearts and minds. They should have come with open hearts and minds. Instead, they were critical. They had critical hearts and critical spirits. They were angry in this situation because in their view, God had punished this man because of sin and only God could forgive sin. Thus, Jesus was claiming in himself God's prerogative. See, I don't know how many people understand, but in the Old Testament, there was no provision in all of the sacrifices for forgiving sin. There's no provision in the Old Testament for forgiving sin. The best that they could do in the Old Testament through the sacrifices was what? Anybody know? Best they could do was cover the sin for another year. To cover the sin for another year. It couldn't be forgiven. It couldn't be forgiven till Jesus. What would happen is only God alone could forgive sin. The law only provided a means to cover sin. So the process was this. Somebody who transgressed the law would bring a sin offering to the priest. By laying his hand on its head and confessing his sin before God, guilt was transferred to the sin offering. Then the blood of the sacrificial animal was sprinkled on the horns of the altar and the sin was covered but not absolved. The sin was covered but not absolved. That's why the sacrifices had to be done what? Over and over and over and over again. That's one of the key truths of the book of Hebrews. The sacrifices had to be done over and over and over again because they could only cover sin for a period of time and then there had to be a sacrifice again to cover the sin again. That's why there had to be sacrifices over and over and over again. None of them did away with sin. The priest was able to announce in Jehovah's name and Yahweh's name that his sins were covered. But what we have here in Mark chapter 2 is Jesus is speaking in his own name. In his own name. These religious leaders should have come with open hearts and minds Instead, they came with a critical heart and a critical spirit. Verses 8 and 9, Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit 
that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? Both are equally impossible to man. Both are equally impossible to man to say, get up and walk and take your mat. Your sins are forgiven. Both are equally impossible to man, but possible to God. But possible to God. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed, and I, I kind of have to laugh when I read this, this amazed everyone. And the word amazed there means they were struck out of their senses. In other words, they were blown away. Wow. Can you imagine? What, what if you were in that crowd? What if you saw that? Here is a man paralyzed, not able to move, not able to walk, certainly not able to stand up and carry his mat, and suddenly at the words of Jesus, your sins are forgiven, at the words of Jesus, get up, take your mat, and get up, walk, take your mat, this man does that. I would be blown away also. I would be blown away also. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. You see, a couple of things here are important. When we read in verse 10, that Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He is using an Old Testament term found in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, calling himself Son of Man. This is a phrase that he used, uh, that was used of him 14 times in the book of Mark. It had messianic significance. It had messianic significance. It was used in connection with Christ's mission, with his death, with his resurrection, and his second coming, it was full of meaning, son of man. Verse 11, he tells the paralytic, get up, take your mat and go home. He showed the character of the salvation that he brought, and that is healing the whole person. One person said this, he did the miracle which they could see that they might know that he had done the other one that they could not see. In other words, he healed the man, caused him to get up and walk and carry his mat. That they could see so that they might understand that that miracle which they could see, not see, the forgiveness of sin had occurred as well. And so Jesus does the miracle which they could see that they might know that he had done the other one that they could see. And notice in verse 12, he got up, took his mat, and walked. In other words, he was healed instantaneously. He was healed instantaneously. Jesus is demonstrating here, and Mark is demonstrating for us through 
Jesus' actions that he had authority not only over sickness and demons and leprosy, but he had the authority to forgive sin. He was clearly demonstrating not only his compassion, but he was demonstrating his deity. So in closing, the question for us is, what is our need? What is your need today? What is some need in your life? Have you given it over to Jesus? Do you realize he is the one that can meet needs? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're struggling with something, he is the one who can help. He is the one who stands ready to intervene in your life and to put you on the path that he desires for you. If you do not yet know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you haven't put your faith in him, he is the one that can meet the need for the forgiveness of sin and to give eternal life, life abundantly here and now and life with him forever. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for Jesus' power. Thank you for his authority. Thank you that he does the greatest miracle at all, of all, and that is forgiving sin. We give you praise for such a magnificent Savior, for his compassion and his mercy. May we be compassionate people. May we be merciful people, understanding that we are sinners saved by grace. That doesn't make us better than other people. It makes us better off because we know him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.